Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Julius McGee, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Professor McGee's research and teaching address questions at the intersection of structural inequality, developmental process, processes, and environmental change. McGee's work engages scholarship in the fields of environmental sociology, environmental justice, climate justice, critical theories of race, energy transitions and technological displacement, and socio-ecological systems. Prior to joining the University of Oregon faculty in 2021, McGee was an assistant professor of sociology at Portland State University, as well as a faculty fellow in the Institute of Sustainable Solutions. McGee earned his PhD and MA in, the, in sociology at the University of Oregon. Thanks, Julius, for coming on the show. It's great to have you. And welcome back to the University of Oregon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, and it's great to be back. So tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, so my journey into academia kind of happened. Uh, I mean, in hindsight, it really does feel like all these chance occurrences. Um, you know, in high school, I wasn't all that like focused on going to college. I kind of decided to go because I had a, a number of teachers in high school that, you know, encouraged that and were supportive of that. So I ended up going to Humboldt State University. Um, because it was, you know, I got to apply to CSUs for free. I didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, and that seemed to be the furthest away with the most, you know, like background that I was least familiar with. So I uh, went there and, you know, I fell in love with the sociology department almost immediately. Um, I went in as a psych major and then I took a sociology class because I didn't know what the title was. Um, and then um, that kind of turned into uh, me meeting a series of professors, probably the most significant that ended up, you know, kind of changing the trajectory of my life was uh, Tony Salvaggio, who was a former U of O grad. Um, and so I kind of looked at him and said, well, I want to be like you. So what, how did you do all these things? It's only about U of O. Um, and so I applied to their PhD program with the endorsement of uh, the faculty at Humboldt State. I was fortunate enough to get in. Um, you know, I had a I had an interest in the environment from my studies with Tony Salvaggio. And then, you know, I found myself working with the works of Richard York, John Bellamy Foster, um, you know, corresponding with people like Kari Norgard and, you know, find, finding my path, finding my voice within my research. Uh, and then I got a PhD in 2016 and Portland State, I guess, was sort of part of my northward trajectory. I grew up in Sacramento, so I've been kind of going up north, finally to go back down to come back here. Um, and when I was you know, offered the job here, I was very glad, you know, I'll admit when I was probably an undergrad, it was a dream of mine to actually get to work in the faculty at U of O. Um, so it was not something I was like out there kind of putting out there as like a hope or an aspiration, but when the opportunity presented itself, I was glad to seize it and be here now, so. Wow, that's, that's a terrific story. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've already made clear, you are an environmental sociologist. So how do you define that field? What's special about environmental sociology? Yeah, you know, I think I think environmental sociologists in general are sort of positioned to engage with the the social, political, and economic side of um, you know environmental harm, um, environmental change. Um, so that you know what it means to be be an environmental sociologist has kind of evolved for me as I've gone on the journey. I think initially, you know, I I understood it as a way of analyzing how social, economic, or political institutions affect the environment. So you know, how do we contribute to climate change? Uh, how do we uh, exasperate forest fires, you know, flooding, all these types of things? Or how do we increase earthquake preparedness? Um, but then as I've kind of gone on that journey, you start, you start to kind of realize that what it means to be a human being is to have 
you know, all these deep relationships with the environment. And so really it is just looking at all the sort of intersections through which uh, humans at various levels engage with a variety of different ecosystems uh, through the use of different technologies and then how that mediation of technology and all those relationships that we form lead to unique outcomes. So how is it like some of the work I've done looks at you know, how mass incarceration contributes to climate change, two things that we think are completely you know, separate from one another, but they're intimately linked because of a historical relationship that we've had to fossil fuels. Well, I mean, the, the, you're linking together of things that we would not think about linking together in almost every single area that you study. I was thinking, my God, he, he, you know, he links these two things together. I would have never thought about linking them. So let's, let's start at the beginning of your scholarly trajectory. So your dissertation bears the intriguing title, The Paradox of Green Commodities. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Can you give us a sketch of that project and its findings? Yeah, so that's kind of part of that journey I was saying, talking about earlier. You know, I, when I went to college, I think as many college students do, you get really into um, you know movements, social movements. So I got really into environmental movements. Um, so I went through a period of time when I was trying to eat as much as possible, only organic produce that came from food co-ops and um, uh, the farmers market in Arcata, California. Um, and you know, I had some really good roommates at the time who liked to poke fun at me, I think in a good way, pointing out that, hey, you know, all this organic stuff you're talking about is at Safeway or it's at Albertsons. And that just struck me because I was like, that can't be the same. And I was young and I didn't know enough yet. So I just knew there was something different about it. Um, and then, you know, that was the sort of kernel of interest that got me to ask deeper questions about, well, what is different about organic farming, uh, say, uh, on a large scale versus how I'd come to understand it. Um, and that really got me into deeper environmental questions as I started my pursuits in environmental sociology. I was like, well, what do we think? Like, what's the assumption here? Is that a lot of assumptions are that we promote organic farming because it reduces greenhouse gas emissions. And that got me wondering, well, if there are fundamentally or qualitatively distinct, you know, ways of producing organic uh, goods, uh, is there, does that difference equate to a different relationship with the environment. And while the assumption is because we produce all this organic produce and all these organic goods that should reduce greenhouse gas emissions because on par, right, you know, organic farms have emit far less greenhouse gas than conventional farms. When you look at, again, this is what makes me an environmental sociologist, the social processes. So how is it that, you know, organic goods are produced on a large scale? What we find is that there's an intimate relationship between organic farming and the conventional farming industry. And so what that results in is just an overall expansion of the market. So organic is just sort of adding on top of conventional. And as a result, what we see is that as we increase organic, the production of organic goods, greenhouse gas emissions or water pollution doesn't tend to actually decrease. It's not to say that that isn't possible, but it's just to say that that's not what's materialized in the present. And there's a lot of reasons why that is and that you know, gets in some of the deeper theories that I've studied as an environmental sociologist as well. And that was my sort of beginning of my dissertation. And that was like, okay, if that's the case, maybe that's the case elsewhere. So I started asking, um, I asked it in like any way I could. So, you know, I started thinking, well, that's kind of as a paradox. It's a paradox because of the assumptions we take. Um, so that begs the question, why do we take these assumptions? And I started asking those deeper questions. So I looked into, um, you know, um, alternative fueled vehicles. So like the early stages of the electric vehicle market, or just non-petroleum-based vehicles, even you know, um, um, hydrogen cars, right? All these alternative vehicles, and similarly, the outcome is the same. That as we expand this market, we see this sort of paradoxical outcome 
Um, and that, you know, is also, I'll just kind of note this, you know, that kind of way of thinking really developed out of a relationship that I kind of had with uh, my good friend, Richard York, who's a colleague of mine in the sociology department, you know, he was studying this in a similar way with directly with energy. Um, and, you know, I sort of just looked at what he was doing and thought, okay, maybe there is a deeper, something deeper here that it's not just one instance, but maybe there's something about what, how we've organized ourselves as a species or in the United States, at least, that produces these outcomes that seem to be counterintuitive. So, you know, that's, and that's kind of an ongoing process. I always think that my dissertation really has never ended since I started the project, I'm still doing it, so. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so interesting. Um, if you go to your website, mm -hmm. the landing page uh, has in very large type, uh, intersectional climate mitigation analysis. And it's already clear from what you've said uh, and and what we what I've I've shared about you is that your approach is intersectional. Mm -hmm. So tell us how you understand what intersectional climate mitigation analysis is, and why intersectional approaches to the work that you do, the topics that you study, is so important. Yeah. So I mean, just first and foremost, I'll say that you know a lot of the work that I do when it comes to intersectionality, I really owe to a lot of the relationships with students that I formed back at Portland State University. Um, you know, I was tasked early on with teaching the uh, grad seminar there on social theory. And so there I got into these really fascinating discussions with grad students in the sociology department at Portland State, uh, where we were kind of talking, we were reading Patricia Hill Collins and Kimberly Crimshaw and getting into, uh, you know, the matrix of domination, intersectionality as a theory. You know, really what came out of some of those conversations was the lack of uh, application of these theories in all parts of sociology, it seems to apply out everywhere. And so here I am have, holding these discussions with students, and I'm guilty of being one of those scholars that is, you know, knows this stuff. I've read, I read Collins in grad school, right? So I, I knew what intersectionality was, but I had found no way to really honor what I learned from her and others and incorporate it into my work. So I started trying to think about the things that I'd learned as an environmental sociologist and how I can, you know, start to use that lens, intersectionality as a lens to see that as a pervasive reality as far as how climate change, uh, you know, climate change intersects with all of this, this broader matrix of domination. That's led me to some interesting conclusions over time. But, you know, one thing that I've done is I've tried to see that as like a sort of you know, almost like an organism that's always changing. So as we shift our relationship to um, um, energy, right, that has, you know, has, has all these, you know, sort of reverberating effects in society. So, you know, how we consume fossil fuels is not, that's an intersectional reality, right? Not all people consume energy the same. Energy is not distributed equally. Um, and therefore, when we attempt to shift away from, say, fossil fuels, that, that outcome is also the same. So again, not everyone is driving in the same location. Not everyone's using the same types of technology. And as a result, when we attempt to put forth policies that try to limit the consumption of fossil fuels that can have these, you know, what I, some people want to say unintended outcomes, but it's, it's a little difficult to think of it that way, because when you look at the history of all this stuff, it seems, well, how do we not know this? You know, we look at you know, the history of urban renewal. How do we not know that because we built highways through explicitly through black communities historically, and we look at the effects that it, that has had on the black family, how that's affected specifically black women, how are we surprised then when, uh, you know, the, the subsequent gentrification of those communities, which kind of has this green tag to it, how that has, you know, these long lasting effects on specific populations that have historically been marginalized. It all kind of makes sense when you add it to that broader narrative, what I just came to find is that, you know, that lens hadn't been 
applied in a way that I think, you know, did the theory justice. So, so um, let's, I want to talk more about the sort of all the implications of what you've just said, but the, the, the biggest picture about this, it seems to me, it comes out of um, a recent uh, article that you wrote with your collaborator, Patrick Trent Griner, and mm -hmm. that argues that racial justice is climate justice. Mm -hmm. So help us to understand how that makes sense to you, why that makes sense, that claim. Yeah, so, you know, about probably about five years ago, there was a series of scholars that kind of published these long-standing histories on uh, climate change, on our use of fossil fuels. So uh, Andres Malm was one of them. He wrote this book called Fossil Capital. It's a book called Burning Up by uh, Perini, although I'm forgetting their first name, um, which I apologize if you're watching this. Um, but, in, you know, these books are really good at kind of tracking this legacy of how we've used fossil fuels. Um, and at this point in time, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm a professor at Portland State. And again, I'm deeply immersed in these conversations with my students from an intersectional lens. And it's just so clear to me as I'm reading these books and learning so much about the history of fossil fuel use, that they're just completely overlooking this diff different side of the story. So for example, how, were, how was electricity introduced into the United States? That did not just, that didn't happen in a neutral way. That happened through an act of dispossession. You know, there was an unequal distribution of electricity that still has effects on Black communities in the United States today. And, you know, these, again, were stories that I knew from a different vantage point. So, like, all the pieces were there to note that, you know, okay, when we talk about, uh, you know, climate justice and we talk about, you know, trying to uh, have a just transition away from fossil fuels, we really need to understand how fossil fuels, the, their actual application, they're not just. Uh, so I, the starting point for that for me was, for example, at the onset of the Industrial Revolution, right? That comes from the, you know, the application of the steam engine in England. Um, and that was used in the textile industry specifically to produce, you know, cotton. So cotton cloth, right? And, you know, England became the de facto clother of the world. And, you know, almost 90% of the cotton that England was using to manufacture in these uh, steam engines were coming from the United States on plantations in the United States that were being run by enslaved African people. So from the beginning, the Industrial Revolution has been a part, a part of a broader global racial project. Not to mention, for example, all of that cloth was actively being used uh, in an imperialist manner to dispossess hand cloth weavers in India who had you know, historically been sort of the, the clothers of the world. So part of the way that the British were able to colonize India was by operationalizing the sort of their former <laughs> their former colonies in the US to help them to mass produce these goods. And that's the beginning of the industrial revolution. And so to me, it's like, just from the start, you have this deeply you know, racial story. So the question is, well, what are the implications of that today? And to get there, you have to keep the story going because it's not like that tells you immediately why things look the way they do. What it does tell you is that there's something to this general story that we just don't really focus on. Because when we think of fossil fuels and climate change, we oftentimes like to think that those things are neutral. Um, I mean, I can go on and on and on, but uh, but I'll, I think that, that hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, really helpful. So let's let's look at some more granular parts of mm -hmm. this of this larger argument you've just made. And another example of the kind of bringing together two things that most people probably don't think about together. So one of the of these fascinating topics of your research is the relationship between mass incarceration and climate change. Mm -hmm. So when I read that in your work, I was like, what? There's a relationship between that? Tell, tell us what your research found about the relationship between mass incarceration and climate change. Yeah, so again, this is um, part of me being, you know, I was, you know, in Portland at the, uh, in the Trump era, right? And so I, you know, again, got immersed in literature. Um, so I started reading 
um, um, now I'm forgetting names of Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's Golden Gulag. So I was really learning about the system of mass incarceration. And again, learning about how it's a continue. This is called The New Jim Crow for a reason, how it's a continuation of the system of enslavement in the United States. Um, so again, we go back to what I said earlier about how that was always intimately linked to the Industrial Revolution. So that enslavement really was how one of the engines of Industrial Revolution. Um, well, again, what happened next? How did, how did, how did the United States choose to deal with uh, its Black population you know, after abolition? And we know that story quite well. Most people in the United States, a lot of people in the United States know that story, right? We know we got Jim Crow, and then we had the Great Migration, and then we had all this, we had this sort of the construction of you know, urban ghettos in places like Chicago and New York, uh, and then we had urban renewal that followed the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and at the end of that, where the where we're at now is we're in this era of mass incarceration, and you know, and it's a it's a massive phenomenon. So what really kind of led me to make this the initial theoretical assumption. So I was, you know, just kind of I'd been learning about you know the ways in which uh, climate change is intimately tied to inequality, and I uh, arrived at the theoretical assumption first, where I was like, you know, I so I went from the point of view like it's clear that mass incarceration would contribute to climate change because you can't have the system of mass incarceration with an abundant use of fossil fuels. And we built, I mean, back in the 90s and 80s, we were building more prisons than we were schools. I mean, in the span of, you know, just a few decades, we built, you know, 1,200 prisons in the United States. These are these massive concrete structures. You know, the, the sort of, you know, the infrastructure, what it takes to build a prison is heavily, you know, carbon intensive. But even before that, when you looked at how the system of mass incarceration works, so, you know, it's not just you incarcerate people. This has been used to expand, like to extend the system of enslavement. So a lot of incarcerated people work in textile factories, right? They, they make garments. They're textile workers, just like we had in England, right? So now it is the very population that was picking the cotton is now the same population that is, you know, uh, manufacturing the textiles. Um, and I knew that, that, that there was some link there. So I knew theoretically that existed. And then I had quantitative you know, skills. So I knew how to model that if I had the data. And I'll admit that when I went to do the analysis, I was like skeptical. I was like, I wonder if there's enough there to really show that that's connected. But the fact that there was, that there is enough with the data that's available, a very clear link that as we increase the percentage of the population of the United States incarcerated, we see a clear leap and the amount of carbon dioxide emissions, it just, you know, it really adds up. And so the kind of three factors that I kind of put together in that paper was that, you know, it's this massive project project that we did, you know, throughout starting in the 1970s that really continues continued to the day, which is a massive rehousing of the population of the United States following urban renewals. So if you think of it from that perspective, you had to build all these new, all this new infrastructure to house people that were previously housed in different communities. And then on top of that, you now put them into new labor structures that have decreased the cost of labor, which have allowed certain industries to expand at a faster pace, particularly textile industries, which are the fourth largest contributor to carbon dioxide emissions in the United States still today. So of course, once you decrease the wages of workers, because most prisoners are paid either nothing or less than a dollar a day because of the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution that makes them se separate from what we consider you know, traditional wage laborers, so you add those together. Uh, so again, how they're used in wages, how you have this massive movement of building all these prisons. And you know, you get you arrive at this assumption where it's like, well, it makes sense to me. <laughs> it just makes sense that this would you'd have a clear link here um, between mass incarceration and carbon dioxide emissions in the United States, because it's a part of the way the US has used fossil fuels to sort of you know make hold on to its power. It's, it's an industrial juggernaut, right? The United States is a large, is still you know, a large industrial manufacturer. And, 
you know, that is right now being built on the backs of incarcerated people, which again, is an, it's an, if we think of it as an expansion of the system of enslavement, what you have now is just a, a broader base of the population that's actively being disenfranchised uh, by this process. And that disenfranchisement means more carbon dioxide emissions, both because we have to house them and produce all the goods to maintain prisons, right? They have to eat, they have to, you know, they have to sleep somewhere. So all these beds need to be made. They have to have all these clothes. That's an entire industry. We call it the prison industrial complex is a multi-billion dollar industry. So yeah, I just sort of added up from there and then I had the, the, the statistical skills and then I was able to sort of tell the story through the statistics that was both deeply theoretical and historical. So let's look at it from a, 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 the same problem from a slightly different angle. So you've also pursued how inequality influences the way renewable energy sources and clean energy are deployed. Tell us about that work. Yeah, so that, you know, that was around the same time I was doing those studies. So I was kind of doing them around the same time. So my thinking was quite similar. Um, and that, again, you know, you know, I can tell these stories often from like the relationships I have. That's how I often work. So, you know, that to me, the um, the renewable energy paper was an ex really kind of trying to expand on the work of my good friend, Richard York. And I was thinking, you know, he had done this study you know, back in 2012, where he showed that you know, renewable energy doesn't reduce fossil fuel energy, you know, one for one, there's not a one for one displacement. And I wanted to sort of figure out more about like, why is that? Like, why does that, why don't we see that happening? Um, and so in this study, I wanted to just sort of ask the, the question of, well, in these places where renewable energy is expanding the most, um, you know, just based on the things that I've been reading, like I'm always constantly reading news stories, it seems like this tends to disenfranchise people. So I immerse myself in literature on energy poverty. So it's about, you know, the people in, you know, in uh, what people call developed nations, really just, you know, North America and, and Western Europe, uh, who live at the margins of energy consumption. So, you know, they oftentimes are choosing between turning on their light switch or uh, going without a meal. Um, and those people have been actively disenfranchised by the expansion of renewable energy infrastructure because that has been tailored to uh, people who can afford it. And so it's what we call this process we call combined and uneven development where we, the way in which we've developed renewable energy infrastructure is by focusing on those who are already well off and making them better off by giving them cheaper energy that they can afford the upfront cost to sort of, you know, put forth. And then that has resulted in increasing energy prices for poor people, which leads to reductions in fossil fuels. And in places where that it tends to be the case, you know, so, you know, places like Germany or uh, Scandinavia, that's where we see, right? We see that this increases energy poverty. So inequality goes up and that is a significant, has a significant effect at the ability of renewable energy to reduce CO2 emissions. Now, because this is the statistical model, what I love about this that paper is that, you know, it, it shows that the inverse is the case as well, though. So it's symmetry there. So what that suggests then is that, but also the places where renewable energy infrastructure reduces inequality has doesn't really have much of an effect on reducing carbon dioxide emissions. But of course, that's true, because if you look at, say, places like Namibia, uh, a lot of renewable energy infrastructure is directly being used to lift people out of poverty. So there's no fossil fuels to be displaced whatsoever. Um, and that, I think, is an interesting phenomenon. It's actually kind of, you know, what I've been focusing on more now lately is that reality that, well, when we do try to make this about reducing inequality, it doesn't really have an effect on climate change. But I think that, you know, to me, that's worth it because that's more sustainable. That will sustain us, right, to really address these issues. So you just mentioned that this is something that you're you're focusing on now. Tell us, can you say a little bit more about what you're working on, your most current research? Yeah, so right now I'm in the process of writing a book. 
I mean, the title goes where I go back and forth. I have this. Right now, what I'm working with is the simple title, uh, Capitalism and the Climate Crisis. And it's a, it's a history. It's a long history of, you know, if you think about the climate crisis as a sort of chain reaction where there's an initial moment at an inflection point that starts off an uncontrollable chain reaction that gets us to where we are today, right, where we are, you know, we're reeling in, these, in the United States and what, is, what I see as a racial reckoning in addition to the climate crisis. I don't think that those two things are separate. I think that they're, they're actually, they've been working in tandem throughout history. And it's about just kind of parsing out the pieces of the story and telling the story in such a way that we can see that today. So it's not all that, you know, it's not all that, you know, um, surprising. Um, and I've gone back really far in that research to sort of show that. And the goal at the, you know, the goal I'm kind of working towards is to show, you know, how that reflects how we see nations respond to this crisis. So we have, you know, these migrant crises. So the one good example of this is uh, we had 35,000 people from the uh, island of the island nation of Haiti coming over to the United States at the uh, southern border in um, Texas who were setting up migrant camps who have been either shipped back to Haiti or they have uh, been put into uh, private prison systems, right? Uh, ICE detention centers in the United States. And, you know, again, this is, this is an outgrowth of the system of mass incarceration, interestingly enough. Um, but if you look at that history, right, why are people coming here? Because there's a fuel shortage in Haiti right now. And that has everything to do with the U.S.'s imperial presence in Haiti, right? So Venezuela was selling Haiti cheap fossil fuels to help its economy, boost its economy up. The United States has had tension with uh, Venezuela since 2005, since Hugo Chavez was elected president. And what, I, what we're finding is that when, again, when fossil fuels and energy resources are being used to sort of try to lift up these communities, oftentimes the United States, you know, comes in with its imperial presence and then, you know, shifts that around and works it to its benefit. And, I noticed, and it seems a little counterintuitive to think that having these migrants coming through the United States is, uh, doesn't help anyone, but it does. It helps these private prison industries. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, and it also helps some nation states. We see this happening in Europe and Belarus, where certain nations become the bottleneck where migrants are coming from, these places that have been dispossessed by our active production of fossil fuels. You know, they are using their position to sort of, you know, get what they want to threaten other nations, right, with migrants. And the point I'm trying to get people to see is that these things are all very intimately connected, but you have to tell the story properly to be able to see that. So it's a long project. I'm starting in the 11th century. So yeah, it's pretty long, but it's been fun. I've really enjoyed what I've been uh, writing and figuring out. So yeah. Oh, completely fascinating. So thanks for telling us all about your fascinating research, mm -hmm. but you are also, and I'm sure anyone watching this will know, you are obviously also a teacher. Mm -hmm. So tell us about a class that you teach at the University of Oregon. Yeah, so right now I'm teaching a class that's uh, race and ethnicity. So I know people watch it, but I don't care about the the, the, the course number, but, you know, Social 345. Um, and, you know, I, I'm enjoying the class. And when I came to U of O as a grad student, I think I really was reluctant, uh, reluctantly became a race scholar because I didn't want to intellectualize my own experience of the world. So I kind of, you know, tried to stay away from studying issues of race. But, you know, as my academic career evolved, I could never do that. That was never going to happen. Um, so I've, you know, I found myself really kind of embracing that role, becoming a race scholar. So, you know, getting to teach this class with 110 students has been a really awesome, you know, reality. So we just, so the students just turned in their midterms and there was a, you know, they got to make the midterm. So we, I've, you know, we've been learning the last five weeks, we're reading James Baldwin, you're reading all these sort of reading intersectionality. So again, I love having these conversations with students, reading Kimberly Crimshaw, reading Patricia Hill Collins. 
Um, and, and then, you know, I get to share all the things I'm learning in my book right now. So I get to share this deep history with them that I've been sort of engaging with. So it's led to some really fun, yeah, interesting conversations. You know, I get to read their journals where they reflect on the things that they're reading um, about, you know, a lot of it's quite revealing, right? They don't know the history of the, the history of the United States told from the perspective of Native Americans. So to see what the, the horrors of settler colonialism, I think, is eye-opening to a lot of students. And, and I don't do it for that eye-opening, that point, but I admit that when you see students sort of take it in and really sit with it and it has that effect on them, you know, it gives me hope in the world. I sometimes think that like, you know, teaching is the, the most important part of my job because it, if without that, I would, you know, I think it'd be quite depressing all the things that I do, but really getting to make a difference by, you know, trying to share this knowledge, you know, even if it's just a little bit of a difference, it's worth it. And also, again, I, I just have always had a passion for teaching. I love talking with students. Um, the students here at U of O are great. I've really enjoyed being back and getting to chat with them again, so yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, this conversation. Thank you so much for the incredibly interesting research that you do. And thanks so much for teaching our students. I'm sure it is an, an, a mind blowing and, and expanding experience for them. It's been great speaking with you. Likewise. I've been speaking with Julius McGee, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching. Mm -hmm.